14. From its frequent representation on the coin of the realm, the royal arms, and c. It was made for the coronation of Charles I.I. To replace the one broken up and sold during the civil wars, which was said to have been worn by Edward the Confessor, it is of gold, and consists of two arches crossing at the top, and rising from a rim or circlet of gold, over a cap of crimson velvet, lined with white taffeta, and turned up with a ermine. The base of the arches on each side is covered by a cross patty, between the crosses are four flirters de lis of gold, which rise out of the circle, the whole of these are splendidly enriched with pearls and precious stones, on the top, at the intersection of the arches, which are somewhat depressed, are a mound and cross of gold the latter richly jeweled, and adorned with three pearls, one on the top, and one pendant at each limb, the Prince of Wales's crown is of pure gold, and adorned with jewels, on occasions of state, it is placed before the seat occupied by the heir apparent to the throne in the House of Lords, the Queen's diadem was made for the coronation of Marie d'Este, consort of James I.I., it is adorned with large diamonds, and the upper edge of the circlet is bordered with pearls, the temporal scepter of Queen Victoria is of gold, two feet nine inch in length, the staff is very plain, but the pommel is ornamented with rubies, emeralds, and diamonds, the flirters de lis with which this scepter was originally adorned have been replaced by golden leaves, bearing the rose, shamrock, and thistle, the cross is variously jeweled, and has in the center a large table diamond, her majesty's spiritual scepter, rod of equity, or scepter with the dove, is also of gold, three feet seven inches long, set with diamonds and other precious stones, it is surmounted by an orb, banded with rose diamonds, bearing a cross, on which is the figure of a dove with expanded wings, the queen's ivory scepter was made for Maria d'Este, consort of James I.I., it is mounted in gold, and terminated by a golden cross, bearing a dove of white onyx, the impala is an antique vessel of pure gold, used for containing the holy oil at coronations, it resembles an eagle with expanded wings, and is finely chased, the head screws off at the middle of the neck for pouring in the oil, and the neck being hollow to the beak the latter serves as a spout, through which the consecrated oil is poured into the anointing spoon, which is also of pure gold, it has four pearls in the broadest part of the handle, and the bowl of the spoon is finely chased within and without, by its extreme thinness, it appears to be ancient, the aramila or bracelets, are of solid fine gold, chased, one one two inch in breadth, etched with rows of pearls, they open by a hinge, and are enameled with the rose, fleur de lis, and harp, the imperial orb, or mound, is an emblem of sovereignty, said to have been derived from imperial Rome, and to have been first adorned with the cross by Constantine, on his conversion to Christianity, it first appears among the royal insignia of England on the coins of Edward the Confessor, this orb is a ball of gold, six inches in diameter, encompassed with a band of gold, set with emeralds, rubies, and pearls, on the top is a remarkably fine amethyst, nearly one one two inch high, which serves as the foot or pedestal of a rich cross of gold, thirty two inches high, encrusted with diamonds, having in the center, on one side, a sapphire, and an emerald on the other, four large pearls at the angles of the cross, a large pearl at the end of each limb, and three at the base, the height of the orb and cross being eleven inches, the queen's orb is of smaller dimensions than the preceding, but of similar materials and fashion, the salt cellars are of singular form and rich workmanship, the most noticeable is the golden salt cellar of state, which is of pure gold, 
richly adorned with jewels, and grotesque figures in chaste work. Its form is castellated, and the receptacles for the salt are formed by the removal of the tops of the turrets, in the same chamber with the crowns, scepters, and other regalia used in the ceremonial of the coronation, is a very interesting collection of plate, formerly used at coronation festivals, together with fonts, and see, amongst these are the queen's baptismal font, which is of silver, gilt, tastefully chased, and surmounted by two figures emblematical of the baptismal rite, this font was formerly used at the christening of the royal family, but a new font of more picturesque design, has lately been manufactured for Her Majesty. There are, besides, in the collection, a large silver wine fountain, presented by the Corporation of Plymouth to Charles I.I. Two massive coronation tankards, of gold, a banqueting dish, and other dishes and spoons of gold, used at coronation festivals, besides a beautifully wrought service of sacramental plate employed at the coronation, and used also in the chapel of St. Peter in the tower. What is time? I asked an aged man, a man of cares, wrinkled and curved, and white with hoary hairs, time is the warp of life. He said, Oh tell the young, the fair, the gay, to weave tea well. I asked the ancient, venerable dead sages who wrote, and warriors who bled, from the cold grave a hollow murmur flowed, time sowed the seed we reap in this abode. I asked a dying sinner, ere the tide of life had left his veins, time, he replied, I've lost it, got, the treasure, and he died, I asked the golden sun and silver spheres, those bright chronometers of days and years, they answered, time is but a meteor's glare, and bade me for eternity prepare, I asked the seasons, in their annual round, which beautify or desolate the ground, and they replied no oracle more wise, tis folly's blank and wisdom's highest prize, I asked a spirit lost, but oh, the shriek that pierced my soul, I shudder while I speak, it cried, a particle, a speck, a might of endless years duration infinite, of things inanimate, my dial I consulted, and it made me this reply, time is the season fair of living well the path of glory, or the path of hell, I asked my bible, and methinks it said, time is the present hour the past is fled, life, Life today, tomorrow never yet on any human being rose or set. I asked old father time himself at last. But in a moment he flew swiftly past his chariot was a cloud. The viewless wind his noiseless steeds, which left no trace behind. I asked the mighty angel who shall stand one foot on sea, and one on solid land. By heaven, he cried, I swear the mysteries order, time was. He cried, but time shall be no more. Ref. J. Marsden. Simplicity in writing, fine writing, according to Mr. Addison, consists of sentiments which are natural without being obvious. There cannot be a juster and more concise definition of fine writing. Sentiments which are merely natural affect not the mind with any pleasure, and seem not worthy to engage our attention. The pleasantries of the waterman, the observations of a peasant, the ribaldry of a porter or hackney coachman, all these are natural and disagreeable. What an insipid comedy should we make of the chip-chip of the tea-table, copied faithfully and at full length. Nothing can please persons of taste but nature drawn with all her graces and ornament lobel nature, or, if we copy low life, the strokes must be strong and remarkable, and must convey a lively image to the mind. The absurd naivete of Sancho Panza is represented in such inimitable colors by Cervantes that it entertains as much as the picture of the most magnanimous hero or softest lover. The case is the same with orators, 
philosophers, critics, or any author who speaks in his own person without introducing other speakers or actors, if his language be not elegant, his observations uncommon, his sense strong and masculine, he will in vain boast his nature and simplicity, he may be correct, but he never will be agreeable, tis the unhappiness of such authors that they are never blamed nor censured, the good fortune of a book and that of a man are not the same, the secret deceiving path of life which Horace talks of fall and time may be the happiest, lot of the one, but is the greatest misfortune that the other can possibly fall into. On the other hand, productions which are merely surprising, without being natural, can never give any lasting entertainment to the mind. To draw chimeras is not, properly speaking, to copy or imitate. The justness of the representation is lost, and the mind is displeased to find a picture which bears no resemblance to any original nor are such excessive refinements more agreeable in the epistolary or philosophic style, than in the epic or tragic. Too much ornament is a fault in every kind of production, and common expressions, strong flashes of wit, pointed similes, and epigrammatic turns, especially when laid too thick, are a disfigurement rather than any embellishment of discourse, as the eye, in surveying a gothic building, is distracted by the multiplicity of ornaments and loses the whole by its minute attention to the parts, so the mind, in perusing a word overstocked with wit, is fatigued and disgusted with the constant endeavor to shine and surprise, this is the case where a writer overabounds in wit, even though that wit should be just and agreeable, but it commonly happens to such writers, that they seek for their favorite ornaments even where the subject affords them not, and by that means have twenty insipid conceits for one thought that is really beautiful. There is no subject in critical learning more copious than this of the just mixture of simplicity and refinement in writing, and, therefore, not to wander into large a field, I shall confine myself to a few general observations on that head. First, I observe, that though excesses of both kinds are to be avoided, and though a proper medium ought to be studied in all productions, yet this medium lies not in a point, but admits of a very considerable latitude. Consider the wide distance. In this respect, between Mr. Pope and Lucretius, these seem to lie in the two greatest extremes of refinement and simplicity which a poet can indulge himself in without being guilty of any blamable excess. All this interval may be filled with poets, who may differ from each other, but may be equally admirable, each in his peculiar style and manner, Corneille and Congreve, who carry their wit and refinement somewhat farther than Mr. Pope if poets of so different a kind can be compared together and Sophocles and Terence, who are more simple than Lucretius, seem to have gone out of that medium wherein the most perfect productions are to be found, and are guilty of some excess in these opposite characters, of all the great poets, Virgil and Racine, in my opinion, lie nearest the center, and are the farthest removed from both the extremities, my second observation on this head island, that it is very difficult, if not impossible, to explain by words wherein the just medium betwixt the excesses of simplicity and refinement consists, or to give any rule by which we can know precisely the bounds betwixt the fault and the beauty. A critic may not only discourse very judiciously on this head without instructing his readers, but even without understanding the matter perfectly himself. There is not in the word a definer piece of criticism than Fontenelle's dissertation on pastorals, wherein, by a number of reflections and philosophical reasonings, he endeavors to fix the just medium which is suitable to that species of writing, but let anyone read the pastorals of that author, and he will be convinced, that this judicious critic, 
notwithstanding his fine reasonings, had a false taste, and fixed the point of perfection much nearer the extreme of refinement than pastoral poetry will admit of. The sentiments of his shepherds are better suited to the toilets of Paris than to the forests of Arcadia, but this it is impossible to discover from his critical reasonings. He blames all excessive painting and ornament, as much as Virgil could have done had he written a dissertation on this species of poetry. However different the tastes of men may be, their general discourses on these subjects are commonly the same. No criticism can be very instructive which descends not to particulars, and is not full of examples and illustrations. Tis allowed on all hands, that beauty, as well as virtue, lies always in a medium, but where this medium is placed is the great question, and can never be sufficiently explained by general reasonings. I shall deliver it as a thorough observation on this subject that we ought to be more on our guard against the excess of refinement than that of simplicity, and that because the former excess is both less beautiful and more dangerous than the latter, it is a certain rule that wit and passion are entirely inconsistent. When the affections are moved, there is no place for the imagination, the mind of man being naturally limited. It is impossible all his faculties can operate at once, and the more any one predominates, the less room is there for the others to exert their vigor. For this reason a greater degree of simplicity is required in all compositions, where men and actions and passions are painted, than in such as consist of reflections and observations, and as the former species of writing is the more engaging and beautiful, one may safely, upon this account, give the preference to the extreme of simplicity above that of refinement. We may also observe, that those compositions which we read the oftenest, and which every man of taste has got by heart, have the recommendation of simplicity, and have nothing surprising in the thought when divested of that elegance of expression and harmony of numbers with which it is clothed. If the merit of the composition lies in a point of wit, it may strike at first, but the mind anticipates the thought in the second perusal, and is no longer affected by it. When I read an epigram of Marshall, the first line recalls the whole, and I have no pleasure in repeating to myself what I know already, but each line, Each word in Catullus has its merit, and I am never tired with the perusal of him. It is sufficient to remove Cowley once, but Parnell, after the fiftieth reading, is fresh as at the first. Besides, it is with books as with women, where a certain plainness of manner and of dress is more engaging than that glare of paint and airs and apparel which may dazzle the eye but reaches not the affections. Terence is a modest and bashful beauty, to whom we grant everything, because he assumes nothing and whose purity and nature make a durable though not a violent impression upon us. But refinement, as it is the less beautiful, so it is the more dangerous extreme, and what we are the aptest to fall into. Simplicity passes for dullness when it is not accompanied with great elegance and propriety. On the contrary, there is something surprising in a blaze of wit and conceit. Ordinary readers are mightily struck with it, and falsely imagine it to be the most difficult, as well as most excellent way of writing. Seneca abounds with agreeable faults, says Quinctilian Abundant Dulcibus Vinteis, and for that reason is the more dangerous and the more apity to pervert the taste of the young and inconsiderate. I shall add, that the excess of refinement is now more to be guarded against than ever, because it is the extreme which men are the most apity to fall into. After learning has made great progress, and after eminent writers have appeared in every species of composition, The endeavor to please by novelty leads men wide of simplicity and nature, and fills their writings with affectation and conceit. 
It was thus that the age of Claudius and Nero became so much inferior to that of Augustus in taste and genius, and perhaps there are at present some symptoms of a like degeneracy of taste, in France as well as in England. Hume, John Hampton, the celebrated patriot, John Hampton, was descended from an ancient family in Buckinghamshire, where he was born in 1594. On leaving the university, he entered the Inns of Court where he made considerable progress in the study of the law. He was chosen to serve in the Parliament which assembled at Westminster, February, 1626, and served in all the succeeding Parliaments in the reign of Charles I. That monarch having quarreled with his Parliament, was obliged to have recourse to the open exercise of his prerogative in order to supply himself with money. From the nobility he desired assistance, from the city of London he required a loan of L100.000. The former contributed but slowly, the latter at length gave a flat denial. To equip a fleet, an apportionment was made, by order of the council, amongst all the maritime towns, each of which was required, with the assistance of the adjoining counties, to furnish a certain number of vessels or amount of shipping. The city of London was rated at 20 ships and this was the first appearance in the present reign of ship money a taxation which had once been imposed by Elizabeth, on a great emergency, but which, revived and carried further by Charles, produced the most violent discontent. In 1636, John Hampton became universally known by his intrepid opposition to the ship money, as an illegal tax. Upon this he was prosecuted, and his conduct throughout the transaction gained him great credit and reputation. When the long parliament began, the eyes of all were fixed upon him as the father of his country. On the 3rd of January, 1642, the king ordered articles of high treason, and other misdemeanors, to be prepared against Lord Kimbolton, Mr. Hampton, and four other members of the House of Commons, and went to the House to seize them, but they had retired. Mr. Hampton afterwards made a celebrated speech in the House to clear himself from the charge brought against him. In the beginning of the Civil War Hampton commanded a regiment of foot, and did good service at the Battle of Edgehill, but he received a mortal wound in an engagement with Prince Rupert, in Calgrave Field, in Oxfordshire, and died in 1648. Hampton is said to have possessed in a high degree talents for gaining and preserving popular influence, and great courage, industry, and strength of mind, which procured him great ascendancy over other men. Othello's History her father loved me, oft invited me, still quest I on me the story of my life. From year to year, the battles, sieges, fortunes, that I have passed, I ran it through, even from my boyish days to the very moment that he bade me tell it, wherein I spake of most disastrous chances, of moving incidents by flood and field, of hairbreadth scapes in the imminent deadly breach, of being taken by the insolent goad, and sold to slavery, of my redemption thence and portents in my travels history, wherein of enters vast, and deserts idle, rough quarries, rocks, and hills whose heads touch heaven, it was my hint to speak such was the process, and of the cannibals that each other eat the anthropophagi and men whose heads do grow beneath their shoulders, these things to bear would Desdemona seriously incline, still the house affairs would draw her thence, whichever as she could with haste dispatch, she'd come again, and with a greedy ear devour out my discourse, which I observing, took one suppliant louder, and found good means to draw from her a prayer of earnest heart, that I would all my pilgrimage relate, whereof by parcel she had something heard but not intentively, I did consent, and often did beguile her of her tears, 
when I did speak of some distressful stroke that my youth suffered, my story being done, she gave me for my pains a world of sighs, she swore in faith twas strange, twas passing strange, twas pitiful, twas wondrous pitiful, she wished she had not heard it, yet she wished that heaven had made her such a man, she thanked me, and bade me if I had a friend that loved her, I should but teach him how to tell my story, and that would woo her, upon this hint I spake, she loved me for the dangers I had passed, and I loved her that she did pity them, this only is the witchcraft I have used, here comes the lady, let her witness it, s-h-a-k-s-p-a-r-e, filial love, verily duty to parents is of the first consequence, and would you, my young friends, recommend yourselves to the favor of your God and Father, would you imitate the example of your adorable Redeemer, and be made an inheritor of his precious promises, would you enjoy the peace and comforts of this life, and the good esteem of your fellow creatures reverence your parents, and be it your constant endeavor, as it will be your greatest satisfaction, to witness your high sense of, and to make some returns for the obligations you owe to them, by every act of filial obedience and love, let their commands be ever sacred in your ears, and implicitly obeyed, where they do not contradict the commands of God, pretend not to be wiser than they, who have had so much more experience than yourselves, and despise them not, if haply you should be so blessed as to have gained a degree of knowledge or of fortune superior to them, let your carriage towards them be always respectful, reverent, and submissive, let your words be always affectionate and humble, and especially beware of pert and ill-seeming replies, of angry, discontented, and thievish looks, never imagine, if they thwart your wills, or oppose your inclinations, that this ariseth from anything but love to you, solicitous as they have ever been for your welfare, always consider the same tender solicitude as exerting itself, even in cases most opposite to your desires, and let the remembrance of what they have done and suffered for you, ever preserve you from acts of disobedience, and from paining those good hearts which have already felt so much for you, their children, the emperor of China, on certain days of the year, pays a visit to his mother, who is seated on a throne to receive him, and four times on his feet, and as often on his knees, he makes her a profound obeisance, bowing his head even to the ground, Sir Thomas More seems to have emulated this beautiful example, for, being Lord Chancellor of England at the same time that his father was a judge of the King's Bench, he would always, on his entering Westminster Hall, go first to the King's Bench, and ask his father's blessing before he went to sit in the Court of Chancery, as if to secure success in the great decisions of his high and important office. Dr. Dodd, Queen Mary's Bower, Chatsworth, when the widowed Mary, Queen of Scots, left France, where she had dwelt since her fifth year where she had shared in the education of the French king's own daughters, in one of the convents of the kingdom, and been the idol of the French court and people, it is said that, as the coast of the happy land faded from her view, she continued to exclaim, farewell, France, farewell, dear France I shall never see thee more, and her first view of Scotland only increased the poignancy of these touching regrets. So little pains had been taken to cover over the nakedness and poverty of the land, that tears sprang into her eyes, when, fresh from the elegant luxurious court of Paris, she saw the wretched ponies, with bare, wooden saddles, or dirty and ragged trappings, which had been provided to carry her and her ladies from the waterside to Holyrood, and then the palace itself, how different from the palaces in which she had lived in France, dismal and small 
it consisted only of what is now the north wing, the stateroom and the bedchamber which were used by her yet remain, with the old furniture, and much of the needlework there is said to have been the work of her hands, during her long and melancholy imprisonment in England, the art of needlework and reading were almost her only mode of relieving the dreary hours, from the moment Mary of Scotland took the fatal resolution of throwing herself upon the supposed kindness and generosity of Elizabeth, her fate was sealed, and it was that of captivity, only to be ended by death, she was immediately cut off from all communication with her subjects, except such as it was deemed proper to allow, and was moved about from place to place, the better to ensure her safety, the hapless victim again and again implored Elizabeth to deal generously and justly with her, I came, said she, in one of her letters, of mine own accord, let me depart again with yours, and if God permit my cause to succeed, I shall be bound to you for it, but her arrival was unrelenting, and, in fact, increased the rigors of her confinement, whilst a prisoner at Chatsworth, she had been permitted the indulgence of air and exercise, and the bower of Queen Mary is still shown in the noble grounds of that place, as a favorite resort of the unfortunate captive, but even this absolutely necessary indulgence was afterwards denied, she was wholly confined to the castle of Thotherinde, and a standing order was issued that she should be shot if she attempted to escape, or if others attempted to rescue her. Burns, in his Lament of Mary, Queen of Scots, touchingly expresses the weary feelings that must have existed in the breast of the royal captive. Oh, soon to me may summer sun's name air light up the morn, name air to me the autumn winds wave o'er the yellow corn, and in the narrow house of death. Let winter round me rave, and the next flowers that deck the spring, bloom on my peaceful grave, to build railway bridges. In the year 1850, a vast line of railway was completed from Chester to Holyhead, for the conveyance of the royal mails, of goods and passengers, and of Her Majesty's troops and artillery, between London and Dublin Holyhead being the most desirable point at which to effect this communication with Ireland. Upon this railway are two stupendous bridges which are the most perfect examples of engineering skill ever executed in England, or in any other country. The first of these bridges carries the railway across the River Conway, close to the ancient castle built by Edward I in order to bridle his new subjects, the Welsh. The Conway Bridge consists of a tube, or long, huge chest, the ends of which rest upon stone piers, built to correspond with the architecture of the old castle. The tube is made of wrought iron plates varying in thickness from a quarter of an inch to one inch, riveted together, and strengthened by irons in the form of the letter T, and, to give additional strength to the whole, a series of cells is formed at the bottom and top of the tube, between an inner ceiling and floor and the exterior plates, the iron plates which form the cells being riveted and held in their places by angle irons, the space between the sides of the tube is 14 feet, and the height of the whole, inclusive of the cells, is 22 feet 312 inches at the ends, and 25 feet 6 inches at the center. The total length of the tube is 412 feet. One end of the tube is fixed to the masonry of the pier, but the other is so arranged as to allow for the expansion of the metal by changes of the temperature of the atmosphere, and it therefore, rests upon 11 rollers of iron, running upon a bed plate, and, that the whole weight of the tube may not be carried by these rollers, six girders are carried over the tube and riveted to the upper parts of its sides, which rest upon twelve balls of gun metal running in grooves, which are fixed to iron beams let into the masonry, 
The second of these vast railway bridges crosses the Mene Straits, which separate Carnarvon from the island of Anglesey. It is constructed a good hundred feet above high water level, to enable large vessels to sail beneath it, and in building it, neither scaffolding nor centering was used. The abutments on either side of the straits are huge piles of masonry, that on the Anglesey side is 143 feet high, and 173 feet long. The wing walls of both terminate in splendid pedestals, and on each are two colossal lions, of Egyptian design, each being 25 feet long, 12 feet high though crouched, 9 feet abaft the body, and each paw 2 feet 1 inches, each weighs 30 tons. The towers for supporting the two are of a like magnitude with the entire work. The Great Britannia Tower, in the center of the straits, is 62 feet by 52 feet at its base, its total height from the bottom, 230 feet, it contains 148.625 cubic feet of limestone, and 144.625 of sandstone, it weighs 20.000 tons and there are 387 tons of cast iron built into it in the shape of beams and girders. It sustains the four ends of the four long iron tubes which span the straits from shore to shore. The total quantity of stone contained in the bridge is 1.500.000 cubic feet. The side towers stand at a clear distance of 460 feet from the great central tower, and, again, the abutments stand at a distance from the side towers of 230 feet giving the entire bridge a total length of 1849 feet, corresponding with the date of the year of its construction. The side or land towers are each 62 feet by 52 feet at the base, and 190 feet high, they contain 210 tons of cast iron. The length of the great tube is exactly 470 feet, being 12 feet longer than the clear space between the towers, and the greatest span ever yet attempted. The greatest height of the tube is in the center 30 feet and diminishing towards the end to 22 feet. Each tube consists of sides, top and bottom, all formed of long, narrow wrought iron plates, varying in length from 12 feet downward. These plates are of the same manufacture as those for making boilers, varying in thickness from 3 eighths to 3 fourths of an inch. Some of them weigh nearly 7 CWT, and are amongst the largest it is possible to roll with any existing machinery. The connection between top, bottom, and sides is made much more substantial by triangular pieces of thick plate, riveted in across the corners, to enable the tube to resist the cross or twisting strain to which it will be exposed from the heavy and long-continued gales of wine that, sweeping up the channel, will assail it in its lofty and unprotected position. The rivets, of which there are 2.000.000 each tube containing 327.000 or more than an inch in diameter. They are placed in rows, and were put in the holes red hot, and beaten with heavy hammers. In cooling, they contracted strong, 